are entering the Freedom Hut. New Zealand puts a major gun ban into the mix in order to prevent the next mass shooting. People say it looks like the Australia model and maybe America should be next. Guess what? It won't work. I'll explain why. Plus, all of the latest from the First Amendment battle. President Trump has signed an executive order to make college campuses comply with free speech. We've got that and oh so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small step. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The gun's use in this terrorist attack had important distinguishing features. I absolutely believe there will be a common view amongst New Zealanders those who use guns for legitimate purposes and those who have never touched one, that the time for the mass and easy availability of these weapons must end. One of the failings of our system, of course, means that we can have uh, a range of weapons uh, that are of this uh, power and calibre and simply not know how many there are. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Actions being taken in the aftermath of terrible tragedy in New Zealand. That was the uh, prime minister of New Zealand saying that they are going to enact a sweeping gun ban. Um, If uh, that was Prime Minister Ardern, if what she has proposed does become law, uh, New Zealand would declare private ownership of semi-automatic weapons to be illegal. It would ban all assault rifles, which it defines as a semi-automatic rifle. There'd be a mandatory buyback program. There would be the elimination of high-capacity magazines and any firearm conversion kits and the uh, prohibition on any future sales of such items or firearms. Uh, This is a big-time ban. Now, I understand the impulse after you have 50 people horrifically murdered. I understand the the impulse to do something. I know that the public demands action in a situation like this, but I don't think that uh, feelings and platitudes about how to deal with those feelings make for good policy. Those of you who might be sitting there saying, Buck, why are we talking about New Zealand's gun laws? doesn't affect us. Guess what? The same way that stretching back into the Obama administration and and even before then, but particularly in the Obama administration, Australia's gun buyback program became a favorite talking point of the gun grabbers and the anti-gun crowd in this country. This policy in New Zealand, if enacted and as it goes through, you're going to hear from the anti-Second Amendment lobby in this country, the entirety of the uh, mainstream media and all the other people who, who remember, they hate guns. They also hate gun owners, unfortunately. You're going to hear from them that if New Zealand can take this action, why can't America? It will immediately be used. And we, we have a lot of linguistic and cultural similarity with New Zealand. So it's not a, it's not a hard comparison for them to make. They're going to say, well, if New Zealand could do this, why can't we? Well, there are a couple of layers to this. First of all, the Australia model, which they've been talking about for years, is not what the left says it is. 
the very basics of it are that in 1996, there was a huge mass shooting in Australia. And the Aussie government decided that they would in- enact a similar a similar buyback program where you had to turn in your weapons, you received some payment for it. And uh, the idea was that this would get guns out of the hands of the bad people. This came after the Port Arthur massacre in Australia in 1996. So there was a, a new tax that paid for this. So they, they taxed people. There was huge public support for this initially. You know how successful they were in getting guns out of the hands of private citizens in Australia? They got about a third of them, they estimate. So of the three million guns in private hands in Australia, they got about a third of them. In uh, the year 2017 alone, the gray market weapons, which are guns that people still kept after they were supposed to turn them in, they had a drive to get more gray market weapons and they they got 57,000 of them in 2017. So there are at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of guns still in Australia. What's so interesting is that after this buyback program in Australia, the number of guns in private hands, in Aussie citizens' hands, is higher than it was before the buyback program. And there's, never mind less mass shootings, that's also true. There are fewer homicides, fewer gun deaths. So you have more guns, fewer people dying from gun violence, and that came after this whole policy to, you know, get guns out of the hands of people, which didn't even really work. So why would New Zealand look to Australia and say, well, we want to do what you did? It was just a whole lot of a whole lot of effort without any real payoff. And now you look at the New Zealand situation specifically, they don't have a Second Amendment. They don't have a, a right to bear arms. And isn't it, isn't it so important for all of us when we see situations like this that in advanced, sophisticated countries with a lot of cultural similarity to our own, the, the decision to just take guns out of the people's hands can happen very quickly. You know, New Zealand has about 1.5 million firearms in circulation. You know how many, how many murders it had in 2017? 48. It has a few million people and 48 murders. And for the last year they had a... So now this mass shooting was more murders than the entire country of New Zealand generally generally will suffer in an entire year. And before this mass shooting, New Zealand had the lowest murder rate it had ever clocked in in 40 years. So here's what people don't want to say after a mass tragedy like this, but I will because it's what the facts tell us. New Zealand does not have a gun violence problem. And New Zealand, statistically speaking, does not have a mass shooting problem. Now, beyond that, let's say that that the public reaction in New Zealand is such that they don't care even if this would be uh, you know, they, they don't care if the likely effective of, uh, effectiveness of this is low. They, they just want to do something. The problem is doing something here as they're laying it out would, in, in no realistic universe, change the possibility of a mass casualty terrorist attack like this going forward. Um, the Christchurch murderer only needed a handful of weapons to kill 50 people. There are over a million in circulation in New Zealand right now. Does anyone really think that they're all just going to get turned in? Well, the Australia, the Australia uh, 
model shows us that you know maybe you'll get a third of them, maybe. Maybe you'll get half, and you'll still have seven, eight hundred thousand guns in circulation. And even if you were to get all of the guns, which is just not realistic, there can be vehicle attacks that kill dozens and dozens of people. More people were killed in the Nice, France vehicle attack by a jihadist than were killed in this white supremacist shooting spree in New Zealand. You also can have improvised explosive devices, people building bombs. That can kill dozens of people. So this is not a realistic solution in any way, shape, or form to stopping this kind of violence going forward. But people want action. People are scared, and I understand that. New Zealand is not used to any kind of violence, which is one of the reasons why this attacker knew that he would get so much attention for this. Now let's just turn our our attention for a moment to this country where I'm already hearing the usual voices. Oh, we need to, you know, we need to do this. And you're hearing Democrat candidates and uh, Kamala Harris and, you know, Cory Booker, and they want universal background checks. You know, Bernie's, Bernie used to be not pro-gun, but not terrible on guns because he's from Vermont, which has some of the laxest gun laws and some of the lowest gun violence rates of any state in the country. Isn't that interesting? Uh, But now, you know, Bernie's got to appeal to the far left. But in our own country, there are 100 million uh, gun owners that own about 300 million guns, roughly speaking. That's a lot. What, what do they really think will be accomplished by trying to do something? It doesn't even have to be quite as extreme as what they've done or what they're trying to do now in New Zealand. What do they think will be accomplished by that? It's, it's not feasible. It's not possible that they would be able to get all of those guns or anything near all those guns out of civilian hands in this country. There's also that little stumbling block of the Second Amendment to the Constitution that does give us the right to keep and bear arms, one that has also been further codified by the D.C. v. Heller decision that said, no, no, you can have guns and they can be anything that is in common usage is okay. You are allowed to have one. The government can't just say, sorry, no, you don't get to have a gun. But if they're not going to go with the sweeping gun ban of New Zealand, we all know that an assault rifle ban, changing the magazine, uh, you know, the, the amount of ammunition the magazine can hold, you know, that that won't do anything. That just makes the people who push that stuff feel better about themselves. And I think as much of motivation as anything else is that it makes them feel better than the people who they disagree with. Because ultimately the fight over guns in this country is a fight over a rejection of the state's ability to determine that We don't have the rights that we're supposed to have. We don't have the rights that are codified in our founding document. But it's also a back and forth in the culture war where gun ownership is now affiliated with, in the minds of many people, and the statistics bear this out, uh, people that are supportive of the Second Amendment tend to, and not in all cases, but tend to be in intact families, go to church, uh, overwhelmingly Christian. I mean, all, all the, you know, live in redder states, all the things that liberals hate. So guns are really a stand-in in the culture war now for right-wing. 
And anything that the left and the leftist media can do to poke at, defame, undermine, agitate people that want to own guns or that do own guns, they will do. The New Zealand ban is a completely unserious policy in the American context. And unfortunately for New Zealand, and I'm not even talking about the possibility of, let's just be honest, the possibility of insurrection in parts of this country if the government went door to door and tried to take all of our guns, um, of, rebe- of rebellion against government authority with violence, which would be a terrible thing, a terrifying thing. But I think that would happen if the government went door to door and tried to take everyone's guns in violation of the Second Amendment. But it's also uh, a shame that, you know, New Zealand, they are allowing, in a sense, a terrorist to determine their laws and their rights. And that should not be the case. Unfortunately, it is. We have a uh, show with a lot of ground to cover today. The First Amendment, immigration, more on these uh, gun proposals. That's even just in the first hour or so. So, team, stay with me. I'll be back with much more. We do not make or enforce immigration laws as part of our law enforcement duties. I will be attacked for this policy, directive, maybe even by ICE. However, a detainer request is not a valid warrant. There you have a North Carolina sheriff saying what the reality of a sanctuary city policy is. We're going to keep, we're going to talk more later on in the show about what's happening at the border. Obviously, the crisis is it a crisis? Of course it is. Why do Democrats lie about it? All this stuff. But there, you really get get down into the into the nuts and bolts of the issue where. You've got law enforcement that's been told, and some of them obviously believe this, that it's not even a, it's not valid for the federal government to ask local law enforcement to keep somebody who is already in their detention for the federal government's purposes. Essentially, local law enforcement will not assist the federal government in its completely legitimate law enforcement authorities. You know, this you know, imagine for a second if they were going into a drug bust in a house, and the FBI is going in, and they ask for some help from a local local police department. And the local police department said, you know what? Sorry, we're not into this whole drug bust thing. So uh, you guys are on your own. I mean, people would consider that to be uh, kind of an outrage, right? I mean, I think that that would not sit very well. But here you have the reality of immigration enforcement in this country, which is that the Democrats and the entire Democrat apparatus, which does include a lot of people who work in law enforcement, a lot of senior sheriffs and and uh, police commissioners, and they're in cities where sanctuary policies are very popular. If you mess with illegal immigrants at all, uh, if you get on the wrong side of this issue, you probably won't have a job. But they will not help their law enforcement brethren and and sistren. Is sistren a word? I don't know. I might have just made up a word, but you know what I mean. North Carolina Sheriff Quentin Miller. I mean, I, I understand the position he's in, and he probably he's getting criticized right now on this radio show. But federal law enforcement should be able to ask for assistance from local law enforcement without this being a problem. And uh, the, the courts have not have not, in fact, ruled that what he says is true, that a detainee request from the federal government is not valid. And th- but this is where we're heading. I mean, th- this is part of the fight that we have to have now. There's going to be a lot of legal wrangling over 
what do we do about sanctuary city policy? How do we enact uh, better procedures going forward so that you can't have these local law, these local jurisdictions that decide they're not going to play ball? Uh, really, the single the single biggest problem right now for the Trump administration is that immigration enforcement right now is worse than it has been in years. And I, I just don't think that we've really come around to understanding that. I, I think that there's almost a, a denialism that has crept into the thinking on the right about this. Uh, we have not won on the sanctuary city issue. We have not secured the border. The asylum problem at our southern border is completely out of control. It is a crisis. We'll talk more about that later. But even interior enforcement is not what it should be. And the reforms that we were promised to the immigration, the legal immigration system have not occurred. Uh, This system is being abused, scammed, leveraged, and messed with in so many ways. It's dizzying. And the American people elected Trump because we said enough, enough is enough. And here we are. I could not tell you. It would be dishonest for me to tell you that this is going the way that it should. It would be dishonest for me to say that President Trump has managed to corral the Republicans into important action on immigration. Um, Some of the stuff he did was good, but the courts went against him. Um, DACA, for example, is still the policy of the United States government, even though President Trump tried to roll it back. And we, we can't rely just on judicial decisions because those can always go the other way. And that process can get very delayed. And, you know, this this is, you want to talk about existential for the country. I mean, America is going to be a very different place if you have an you know, amnesty. You know, because you're going to have 20 million people that are permanent residents who are, I think also Democrats are at that point going to be able to get them to be able to vote, because why not? And that will be the end of the Republican Party. So the stakes here are very high, folks. What CNN didn't tell people is that they allowed and invited politicians to come up on stage and electioneer. Scott Israel was able to make a big O electioneering speech before this even began, in which he already started deflecting blame by putting it on me. Uh, it was treated as this, I, I think, for ratings. They, they tried to stylize this to make it most emotionally impactful. I question the ethics of them putting it on this way. This wasn't, Tucker, this wasn't a journalistic endeavor. They had this town hall literally titled, it was called Stand Up, the Students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Demand Action. That's not a journalistic endeavor. That is not a journalistic enterprise. That's advocacy. That's right. Because CNN is a propaganda organization for the left. That was my former colleague, uh, Dana Lash, talking to Tucker about how CNN has gotten an award named for Walter Cronkite. Because of their town hall on gun control, which was just an an effort to slam and smear everybody who believes in the Second Amendment, everyone who understands why we have a Second Amendment. That was CNN's moment to bring together its audience in hatred of people who think that the right to bear arms is important. Uh, we, We know what really happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in terms of government failure. And 
the government failure that was the most egregious occurred, you could argue, long before the actual shooting when there was call after call where Nicholas Cruz was visited by police time and time again, you know, dozens of calls. Everyone knew that this guy was a bad kid. That's It is a thing. You know, I know we all like to believe that people, everyone's capable of salvation. I think everyone maybe is capable of salvation, but some people are bad and he was a bad kid. But if you want to look for egregious government malfeasance, the policies of Sheriff uh, Scott Israel in that county in Florida were designed to appease the social justice left. And he was playing politics all across the board with how they would react to referrals for students to be arrested or uh, students who were breaking the law. Uh, They were cooking the books to make it all look better and to make it all tidy for the social justice left. And then that one officer who just sat outside the building and didn't go inside and refused to go inside as all those gunshots were going off. Helpless students inside and he he was armed, he was trained. He chose to just wait. Just wait. It was it was cowardice. And CNN, though, didn't focus on any of that. No, no, no. They went the opposite direction. They held Scott Israel up as some kind of a hero in this whole process. They held him up as the voice of reason. And those Stoneman, you know, the handful, it was really about two or three of them, of Stoneman Douglas students who were then turned in overnight, turned into kind of policy rock stars on gun control. And we're running around Prince Joffrey style calling for boycotts against people and, and just just trying to, to just destroy people because everyone's, oh, you, you can't criticize them. They're just kids and they've suffered a tragedy. Well, are they kids who suffered a tragedy or are they adults who suffered a tragedy and now think that they have the right to dictate national policy to people who know a lot more than them about everything that we're talking about here? But there was that moment. There was that moment in time when they were able to exploit that to the fullest, and they did. That CNN town hall, I remember I watched it. And by the way, producer Mike just pointed out to me that Israel was removed from office. I mean, there, there was, in January, they got rid of him. There was obvious, obvious uh, ineptitude, dereliction of duty on display from Israel and, and from some of the... Uh, you know, school resource officers. I don't know, we just call them like school cops, but I mean, school resource officers that were on uh, that were on hand there. And you know, I I just I remember watching that CNN town hall and thinking, how does anybody really believe that CNN is not the media arm of the of the DNC? You know, how does anyone believe that that's not the case? Um, and and that uh, they're getting they're getting awards for themselves. I mean, that's it's not enough. To just be a bunch of propagandists for anti for the the anti gun movement and and to say I mean the stuff that the that kid uh, what was what's his name now um, Prusa Mike what's the you know the there was uh, what Emma Gonzalez was the young woman and then there was the who's the Hog yeah David Hog, Hog. yeah oh my God I could forget him I I know <laughs> I, well I, I think I, I think it was intentional like my memory banks I just because I remember him going around uh, and saying the most outrageous, indefensible, 
horrific stuff. The NRA is a terrorist organization. The NRA has blood on its hands. These senators are all bought and paid for. You know, these congressmen are all bought and paid for by the NRA. They all have blood on their hands. This guy's running around in, in, in with, you know, Rachel Maddow said that she was like, fangirling over them when they showed up. I mean, that, that that's what, you know, oh, I'm just so, like, so impressed and amazed to see all of you. This guy's running around calling people blood-soaked terrorists who had nothing to do with anything. And if you dared to criticize him, you risked you risk your livelihood, you risked your profession, because he was one of the anointed, you can't criticize that guy people that the left will create and then weaponized for political purposes. You know, the the weaponization of victimization is something the left excels in and has been doing for a very long time. I always give all due credit to uh, Ann Coulter, who was the only one who would point out that the, the quote, 9-11 widows were really a handful of Democrat Women who had lost their husbands, that is true, obviously, and that is very sad and very solemn, but were cutting campaign commercials for John Kerry on foreign policy and the U.S. response to terrorism. And then if you said anything like, I, I don't think that they're right on this, how dare you question the 9-11 widows? And no surprise to any of you, there were a lot of other 9-11 widows who were like, oh, let's go kill the bad guys now, thank you. Let's find them and root them out of their caves and... Take them out, you know? I mean, that, that was the that was the attitude. But that wasn't what you heard from the media because they, they had created this special class of victim that is able to dictate to the rest of us without being challenged. And that was what the CNN town hall on gun control was all about. You know, I, I'm always amazed also. I, I, I wrote uh, my piece today in, in The Hill on how... The New Zealand approach here is just not going to work. I mean, it's not going to do anything. It's not even really dealing with a problem that New Zealand has. I mean, my piece was New Zealand's gun ban is not the answer to stop mass shootings. And, you know, there are uh, almost a thousand comments on this piece. And, you know, so many of them are, oh, you're, you know, people attack me. I just make an argument here for why. And the argument's very clear. The New Zealand gun ban is not going to stop mass shootings uh, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. And instead of engaging with the argument, what people do is they say that um, my face is ugly or I'm stupid or uh, I'm, a, I'm a coward who doesn't care about dead children or you know dead people or dead Muslims or whatever it is. I mean, whether you, you know people think my face is ugly or not, put that aside. The rest of that is obviously not true. But see, this what this is what gets to the heart of the issue, and it's one that we unfortunately we cannot avoid talking about because it is reality that opposition in this country now, opposition to the Second Amendment, has much more to do with the dislike that the left has, the real deep disdain that it that it holds for gun owners. That's right, for those of you who listen to this who own firearms and believe in the Second Amendment, the left hates you. That's what this is really about. They hate you because also your ownership of guns means a lot of other things about your politics and what you're likely to believe. And that's what the cultural divide really is. They know that it's not going to, this isn't going to stop there. If we try to do in New Zealand, it would never happen. It's not going to stop any violence, but they like to lecture people on how we need to take action on guns. So then when you say no, they can say, see, you don't care about dead kids because you're a bad person because you know what? 
That's what they believe. So my buddy uh, Lawrence Jones was down in Texas trying to get a trying to get a handle, I think, on on Beto Mania, which is sweeping media green rooms and big newspaper newsrooms. Um, but Beto Mania is a thing, I guess, if you believe in all that. Yeah, it's a thing because like when the unity of America is open to its heart and it you hold hands with the openness and you all Yeah, you get it. Lawrence, my buddy, walked around. He asked people in Texas, is there anything that you can name that Beto has done that is truly an accomplishment? I mean, you know, is is there anything that you could say? And here is how that went. Play 10. Beto is the candidate that's running for president. Uh, What do you feel about him? I feel that he brings a new perspective to politics. His philosophy on how government should be run is a little not going to say extreme but kind of bordering on socialism what would you say is his number one accomplishment well you know i'm not terribly familiar with his congressional record would you vote for him for president absolutely so if you could name one accomplishment of beto what would you say Mm, i just think he's a real people person and he's gotten a lot of people behind him what would you say was his biggest accomplishment um I, I don't know. I really can't say what his biggest accomplishment was. I voted for him uh, last time, but uh, probably not for president. I don't, I don't think he's quite quite ready for that. I like his idea about tearing down the wall. If you could name one accomplishment of Beto O'Rourke, what would you name? <laughs> Almost beating Ted Cruz. <laughs> biggest accomplishment? Yeah. That part I don't know. Oh, heck. Um, I really don't know. He doesn't have one, though. Well, uh, no. He doesn't have one. No. He doesn't have one, does he? And yet, by the way, I like that. He's a people person. He's good with people. That one lady said he's a people person. That's what that made me think of. There's your movie quote for the day. Uh, Beto is a real contender. Disp- I know you. Th- people. I, I, I have had my mind changed on this. I went from... This guy sounds like Napoleon Dynamite mixed with Keanu Reeves from the 90s, and he has all the, the intellectual heft of you know, a, a, a soul cycle instructor mixed with a yoga instructor mixed with an Aaron Sorkin character from the 90s. And yet, you heard some people there really get to the essence of Betoism, which is people vote for candidates that and you know, there's a lot of social science to back this up. People vote for candidates that make them feel a certain way for voting for that candidate. And if the perception around Beto is that he's cool and open and different and and relatable and likable and all these things, the Democrats will fill in the blanks on everything else. And and the media will take this and they will run it like like they are all his campaign managers. I mean, they're just going to run with this all the way. I think that you could really see Beto go the distance. Biden is a clown. He's too old. He's too boring. He's too, you know, just too many gaffes. His record has got all kinds of problems in it. You know, Biden is not a, he's not going to be able to ride on Obama's coattails into office. It's not going to happen. And, you know, you look around at the rest of the field, other than Beto, and you got this guy like John Hickenlooper. What the heck is he doing? Play 14. 
Governor, some of your male competitors have vowed to put a woman on the ticket. Yes or no? Would you do the same? Well, again, uh, of course. But I think that we should be, well, I'll, I'll ask you another question. How come we well, aren't I'm asking, asking the question? I know. <laughs> I know. But how come we're not asking, we're not asking more often the women, would you be willing to put a man on the ticket? When we get to that point, <laughs> I'll ask you that question. I mean, what does that even mean, dude? Like what? What? What was that? I think is he the guy, Mike, who was uh, he was the drinking the water guy, right? But it wasn't really the water. Yeah, I believe so. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's. I'm going to drink the water to prove actually it's not really the right water. Yeah. Prove that the the river is clean. Yeah. yeah. Some of the some of our Colorado audience will remember that one better than I do. He's a weird but dude. When you, yeah, he seems seems like a weird dude. Um, you know, I, I am. I'm gonna sit down tomorrow with. Uh, Andrew Yang, so that'll be interesting for sure. That's fine. We'll have a little discussion about all that stuff. And you also have a comparison. And when you look around at some of the other Democrats and things that they're willing to say, Beto does seem kind of normal by comparison. You know, that's you can't underestimate that component of this. I mean, there's something about the guy that doesn't he, he's not as um, as as creepy and pathetically obsessively social climbing at least in in his mannerisms and in his approach he obviously wants a lot of attention and all that and that's why he it's like live streaming like i'm just i woke up this morning and i just had like i just had this like desire for cheerios so i wanted to just i wanted to just live stream me eating cheerios and then everyone goes thanks beto for the cheerios but you compare him to guys like you know uh, some some of the others that are in this race and, you know, he seems kind of normal. I mean, people are all over the place talking about um, how they want to just destroy some of the main institutions of the government that we have, right? They want to pack the Supreme Court. They want to get rid of the Electoral College. Oh, here, we, we had Democrat Steve Cohen today say this factually inaccurate thing about the Electoral College. Play three. The country is different than it was when the Constitution was drafted. And when the Constitution was drafted, a lot of it had to do with slavery. Uh, this is all uh, conceived in sin and in, in perpetrating, perpetuating slavery on the American uh, people and on the African-American people directly. The Electoral College is all about perpetuating slavery, he says? Or was, was all about perpetuating slavery? See, I heard him stumble on the word, and now I'm stumbling on the word. Uh, you know, all the, the the facts first people over at CNN, do, do they ever check any of this stuff? Do, do they care when Democrats just make stuff up or get things wrong historically or otherwise? No, they don't care. They don't care. That's why we don't care when Trump says he's you know worth nine billion and they say he's only worth five. Big hour two coming up. You got President Trump is uh, putting forward this executive order today on free speech. This is this is important. Uh, I, I think this really matters. It's it affects college campuses, but colleges are the laboratories for liberal insanity. And it is about time that the White House, the federal government put its foot down with this the 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 left wing bias on campus. We have to wage we have to wage war against this idea that these campuses can just be overrun with Marxist lunatics. In America, the very heart of the university's mission is preparing students for life as citizens in a free society. But even as universities have received billions and billions of dollars from taxpayers, 
many have become increasingly hostile to free speech and to the First Amendment. You see it all the time. Taxpayer dollars should not subsidize anti-First Amendment institutions. And that's exactly what they are, anti-First Amendment. Universities that want taxpayer dollars should promote free speech, not silence free speech. I think this is fantastic. And it's a long time in coming, and and it, it should have happened a long time ago. Here we are now with an administration that's saying, you know what? If if we're going to use federal dollars and the threat of the removal of federal dollars to public and private universities across the country to enforce Title IX regulations, to you know, to enforce these uh, stacked courts against uh, sexual assault, those accused of sexual assault. I mean, these are all things. I mean, the Obama administration wasn't shy about saying, you know, you better do this or else you're going to have a Title IX problem. Well, guess what? The federal government doesn't have to write checks to any of these places. And the federal government should be defending the very principles that our government's legitimacy is built on. And one of those is the First Amendment to the Constitution. And the president is spot on here. And he knows that, that, that the money is the way, money is the only way you hit the other side and get them to really pay attention. Play 17. Under the policy I am announcing today, federal agencies will use their authority under various grant-making programs to ensure that public universities protect, cherish, protect the First Amendment and First Amendment rights of their students or risk losing billions and billions of dollars of federal taxpayer dollars. We will not stand idly by and allow public institutions to violate their students' constitutional rights. If a college or university doesn't allow you to speak, we will not give them money. It's very simple. This is the right move. It's amazing that it's taken this long to get to this point. I wrote my college thesis under the esteemed conservative professor of jurisprudence, Professor Hadley Arkies, who you know, if you listen to the show enough, from his several guest appearances over the years. Uh, But I wrote my college thesis on campus speech codes. And this has been a problem for decades now. And it really, it's an outgrowth of the, really the 1980s and 1990s movements of political correctness. And the left desires, and the left's desire to control what you can say, control what you can think, and get their way as a result of that control, you know, enact further policies. Because if they can direct the debate, then they can also get the actions that they want from it. And so they, they will set these parameters that are ridiculous. They'll call things hate speech. You're like, that's not hate speech. It's just speech. It's just a disagreement. You know, I mean, you know, the parameters of what is considered hate speech, if we allow this to continue on, we're not going to be allowed to say anything anymore. Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. Everything is xenophobic, Islamophobic, you know, on, on any issue of public importance and increasingly just on any issue. You can't really say anything. It is time for conservatives to really not just take a stand, you know, in, in rhetorical terms, but to take a stand that's going to matter. And I, I think the president is doing that here. 
this is going to send a real message to these colleges and universities that the days of you saying that it's it's too triggering it 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 equals violence the speech on campus equals violence of say a pro-life group putting out a table that says that you know abortion is murder that's too triggering you can't say that you're not allowed to have an affirmative action bake sale on campus where you charge different prices i mean these are things that have happened at campuses can't do that too triggering and how bad can it really get? I mean, where where do we head? And that's important in all of this. It's important to keep that context for, for this conversation. Where do we go if we don't say that you, that this is crazy? You know, I've, I've been telling you for a long time that what the liberal campuses promote is what liberalism writ large will. Oh, gosh, I said writ large because I'm in D.C. and that's what everybody always says here. What liberalism overall will embrace and enforce as orthodoxy, it's just a matter of time. It starts on the campuses. Well, you can also look at other countries that we share, you know, cultural heritage with, Canada, the UK, for example, and how far down this road to speech suppression, because, you know, they don't have a real First Amendment. They don't have the same legal and built-in cultural traditions that we do of free speech and and the free exchange of ideas how bad can it really get well in the uk they will send you the, the, the people will cheer if you get sent to prison for misgendering someone play 18 in the papers today a transgender woman called katie yeomans is demanding two and a half thousand pounds compensation because rail staff called her sir now apparently she's six foot tall mm. uh, has short hair doesn't wear makeup. So I would imagine it's a reasonably easy mistake for rail staff to make. And they're trying to be polite by saying sir or madam, depending on how they identify but we don't know the We don't know the context. Well, if we don't. If but it's what I'm happening once, if it is that context, how can that be a matter for compensation? I mean, it's just a, it's just a mistake, isn't it? But is it a mistake? If it's happening once, I'm sure that the lady will accept that it's an error and somebody mm. slipped up. But if, if it's repeated, then it's probably not. I mean, the case you're referring to earlier on, the two individuals, mm. um, Susie Green, who I actually know, the, the amount of abuse she gets for running a transgender charity is insane. She gets trolled every but single day. But so what are we supposed to do here? So there, I mean, that was about compensation payment. There are other people who think you should go to jail for doing it. And you can get kicked off of Twitter for dead naming, which means you refer to somebody who's transgender by their previous gender name. You get kicked off of Twitter for that now. Uh, you can get sued, obviously. That's what they were just discussing in the UK for this. Now, I would tell you that, you know, if you can get sued and the court can demand payment and you don't pay, they also could put you in jail for contempt. So it's not like, oh, you have to pay this person. It's just a, a financial thing. If you on principle refuse to pay someone because you thought they were a he, but it's a she or a she, but it's a he, you can go to jail for that in a sense. This is crazy. It is crazy. And, and you know, the, the left with no more real civil rights battles to wage in this country, they have they have created this new front of, of transgender rights. And part of the right that the transgender movement and the left, which uses the transgender movement as its its real kind of vanguard of social change, 
part of the demands that they have set up, uh, one of the demands is that you have to be a party to a lie, which is that a man is a woman and a woman is a, is a man. And if you are unwilling to do that, you should suffer consequences. And not just social consequences, not just people telling you that that's mean and you're nasty and you're a bad person, because you're going to expect all of that. They want the state to step in. It should send a chill up the spines of every honest, intelligent person in this country that it is now mainstream among the left to want the state to intervene to force you to say something that is just not true, as objectively untrue as anything can be. A man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. This is These are facts. They do not alter or shift based upon public perception and cultural whims. This is why the First Amendment action on campus that Trump is taking is so important, because if we don't stop this now, it's going to crazy town. No, no, we're in Syria. We're leaving 200 people there and 200 people in another place in Syria, closer to Israel uh, for a period of time. Uh, I brought this out for you because this is a map of everything in the red. This was on election night in 2016. Everything red is ISIS. When I took it over, it was a mess. Now, on the bottom, that's the exact same. There is no red. In fact, there's actually a tiny spot which will be gone by tonight. Which is... Basically gone now. The Islamic State as a state is defeated. Something that uh, we should celebrate. Our Kurdish uh, Syrian allies should celebrate. The Iraqi people, the Mideast, the whole world should be celebrating in their own way the destruction of this malignant, malignant cancer of an organization that has resulted in so much Death and dismemberment, despair, misery, slavery, rape. Uh, the Islamic State was a grotesque terror organization, and it has been defeated as much as any terrorist group can be defeated. If we're going to adhere to this, well, you fight the ideology, not the group. Let me tell you, we're never going to destroy the ideology of evil in general, and more specifically, Islamic jihadism. It will always be there. But that doesn't mean there aren't important victories along the way. And this is a victory. We have, in fact, defeated the Islamic State. It's also a victory that the president gets not nearly enough credit for from the look. The real credit goes to the men on the ground doing the fighting. All right. And that includes our U.S. spec ops guys and and the pilots and the people that have been taken and the trainers, the people. And that's that's who gets the real credit. But but from an a commander-in-chief executive decision perspective. This president came into office and was like, what do you mean you're not letting airstrikes that the guys on the ground want to call in happen? What, what do you mean you're not letting the four deployed commanders make the decisions about how to proceed in this fight against the Islamic State? Why, why over-lawyer this thing? Well, that was what Obama was doing very limited strikes from the air very and and a real hesitation a real hesitation to unleash a greater degree of our military capability against 
these evil fanatics of the Islamic State. And, you know, keep in mind, it's not like if we just do less, there are, there are less casualties. When we take the fight harder to the enemy, it means, yes, there'll be more enemy casualties, but it also means there'll be fewer casualties for, our, for the Syrian Democratic forces for the the Kurdish militias that we've been working with, you know, it's it's not a it's not like we're just choosing there to be less death. Sometimes by choosing less aggressive operations because of political concerns that the Obama administration obviously had, there was a greater degree of of, of casualties. It's likely you'll suffer a greater de- a degree of casualties for those who are doing the fighting on your behalf against the bad guys. I mean. Under Trump's watch, we blew up 200 Russians, I think it was, in the desert who were paramilitaries fighting alongside the Assad regime. Uh, We accelerated, which was stunning how little media attention that got, by the way. We accelerated airstrikes by a a huge factor and collapsed the Islamic State, did it very, very quickly. And and for those who are going to take a moment to look at this victory, I think it's uh, important to remember that the Obama administration was unbelievably inept at dealing with Syria. I mean, they they really made the wrong call in Syria every time. It was almost like they were trying to get it wrong. Um, you know, they they were just completely lacking in any real vision. I mean, you got you got Joe Biden, um, who is trying to make the case that what Obama did arming Syrian rebels was a good thing. Play 12. We are working hand and glove with the Turks, with the Jordanians, with the Saudis, and with all the people in the region, attempting to identify the people who deserve the help so that when Assad goes, and he will go, there will be a legitimate government that follows on, not an Al-Qaeda-sponsored government that follows on. Biden is such an empty suit. You know, Biden's whole thing is to sound like a politician that's smarter than the people that he's talking to when he's actually, in reality, dumber than the people that he's talking to. But, you know, he tries to put on the air. He tries to sound authoritative, sound like he really understands this policy matter. And you'll notice that he said there back in the day, oh, yeah, we're going to get Assad will go. No, he won't. Assad's, Assad's not going anywhere. So he was clearly wrong on that and the obama administration tried to do this multilateral you know razzle dazzle of all oh, the un and you know and and the syrian civil war spiraled out of control created a humanitarian crisis that that rocketed through europe uh, led to the largest rise in global jihadism since 9-11, mass casualty attacks in Europe, mass casualty attacks on U.S. soil by adherents of Islamic State ideology and, and supporters, lone wolf supporters particularly. All that happened under Obama's watch. Notice how that's not happening now. Where is the terrorism safe haven where there are mass casualty attacks being planned against European allies or against... Where is that? It's... It's not happening. It did not have to happen the way that it did under Obama's watch, but there was an unserious foreign policy team in place. People like Susan Rice and Samantha Power and Ben Rhodes. These people don't know anything. They don't have good judgment. They don't understand the way the world really works. 
And that was, that was, in fact, why our policy in Syria was so disastrous while Obama was in charge. I think at one point they spent, I think it was $500 million to train seven troops. You can go back and check on this. $500 million spent to train seven soldiers. At the end of the day, they were left with seven actual fighters that they, that this is through the, the Pentagon that they trained uh, under the Obama administration's watch in Syria. I mean, they, they could not have made more of a, of a hash of things. Weren't able to box out Russia at all. Weren't able to, you know, their, their whole approach was just to talk tough on this issue. Didn't enforce the red line about chemical weapons. Trump enforced the red line on chemical weapons. You know, here's a big difference in foreign policy between Obama and Trump. If Trump says, you know what, if they punch us, I'm going to punch them back. Everybody believes him. When Obama would say, if they punch us, we're going to punch them back. People thought, well, you know, what is MSNBC going to say about it in the morning? Do they think we should punch back? If the answer is no, Obama's probably not going to want to punch back. He's going to want to hold some kind of a meeting. Obama was a hold the meeting guy. Obama was always able to get away with being contemplative, they said, when really it was, he was just indecisive. And when you're the commander in chief, when you're the chief executive of the United States government, indecision is not a good thing. They can try to mask it as being contemplative as much as they want, but Obama just wasn't very good at making the call on this stuff. Certainly not in Syria. We'll be right back. Let it come out. Let people see it. That's up to the attorney general. We have a very good attorney general. He's a very highly respected man. And we'll see what happens. I want to see the report. And you know who want to see it? The tens of millions of people that love the fact that we have the greatest economy we've ever had. I know nothing about it. I know that he's conflicted. And I know that his best friend is Comey, who's a bad cop. And I know that there are other things, obviously. You know, I had a business transaction with him uh, that I've reported many times that you people don't talk about. But I had a nasty business transaction with him uh, and other things. I know that he uh, put 13 highly conflicted and, you know, very angry. I call them angry Democrats in. With all of that being said, I look forward to seeing the report. Trump wants that report out. He's not going to be able to walk back from that now. But why would he want to walk back from it? The Mueller report's not going to have collusion. You know, the nice thing about being Trump is that they, they can't get away with fabricating evidence at this level. And there's no evidence of collusion because collusion didn't happen. We keep hearing these rumors here in the swamp. And I'm sorry that I, I haven't been able to uh, get to the bottom of it and and. You know, I'm I'm hearing from very well placed sources who, as I've told you, they they ship the goalposts. They say, "Oh, it was going to be this week, but now it's going to be next week, and now it's going to be next week, and now it's." And I and I do think that there's goalpost shifting going on inside the Department of Justice too. It's not just me that I'm not the only one who's hearing this, but you know, today I think even on the on the Drudge Report, which by the way, the Drudge Report got rid of its app. Am I the only person that liked the Drudge app? What's what's going on with that one? But on the Drudge Report today, Mueller gets ready, anticipointment. Eh, that's not the best Drudge. Sometimes Drudge headlines are amazing. That's not the best one. Uh, but there were a lot of people that were 
preparing in media land here today in D.C. for this report to drop. And now that we're obviously past D.C. business hours, because, you know, this town really shuts down at five o'clock. Everyone's like, oh, forget about national security. Time to go home. <laughs> you know, no, no one really worries too much about things when, when the clock when the clock hits five, unless they're getting OT for it. They tend to uh, to head right home. But it could be, it should be any day. We we keep getting told that this will happen any day now. And um, I, I certainly want to see what's in it. The president wants to release what's in it. Um, and then there's this other component of it too, which is where do we go from the report? See, here's what I would like to have happen. Once the report's out and it's clear that there was no collusion and that this was all a sham, I would like to see Trump and the White House go on offense here. Uh, I would like to see the uh, the White House use the, the power that they have to declassify information that they maybe that the uh, deep state types at DOJ and FBI still want to keep classified and to tell the Department of Justice right now, which is a executive branch agency, you know, to start looking into some other things. They, they never needed a special counsel. That was just a, a political move to create. Uh, essentially a, a, a complete a completely insulated and unaccountable to the uh, executive branch chief which is the president create this little set aside investigation but they could have just investigated these things the DOJ had a, had a you know whether under counterintelligence auspices or under the uh, you know the rubric of a criminal investigation but now, I don't want this to be, okay, let's just move on. I want it to be, no, 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 no. How about how about payback? How about we look at what really happened with Hillary Clinton, Fusion GPS, and, and all the rest of it? How about we dive into that without Sanctacomi and some of the other angry Democrat partisan clowns running interference for the left and the institutionalists around them who are either ideologically in bed with them or too cowardly too dishonest about who they are and what they're doing to stand up and and put a stop to it. Joe DeGeneva, who is a former U.S. attorney in D.C., he was talking about this, and and I, I like where his head's at, play nine. It is quite obvious that there were crimes committed by people associated with the Clinton campaign, with the Democratic National Committee, with Fusion GPS and other people. Those things, for all intents and purposes, for all that we know, have been ignored. They were certainly ignored by Mueller, and they have been ignored thus far by the Department of Justice. Now we know that the Ukrainian officials were deeply involved in trying to help Hillary Clinton through this. And we also now know that the current United States ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, has badmouthed the president of the United States to Ukrainian officials and to t and has told them not to listen or worry about Trump policy because he's going to be impeached. Right, what he's referring to there is a story that my colleague at the Hill, John Solomon, broke this week about just what really happened in Ukraine. Who, who are the Ukrainians really trying to or who is trying to help Hillary and how in Ukraine? Let me give you a little bit from this piece. After nearly three years, remember, this is up on thehill.com right now. After nearly three years and millions of tax dollars, the Trump-Russia collusion probe is about to be resolved. Emerging in its place is nearly unearthed evidence suggesting another foreign effort to influence the 2016 election 
this time in favor of the Democrats. Ukraine's top prosecutor divulged in an interview aired Wednesday on Hill TV that he has opened an investigation into whether his country's law enforcement apparatus intentionally leaked financial records during the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign about then-Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort in an effort to sway the election in favor of Hillary Clinton. The leak of so-called black ledger files to U.S. media prompted Manafort's resignation from the Trump uh, Trump campaign and gave rise to one of the key allegations in the Russia collusion probe that has dogged Trump for the last two and a half years. Ukraine Prosecutor General Yuri Lutsenko's probe was prompted by a Ukrainian parliamentarian's release of a tape recording purporting to quote a top law enforcement official as saying his agency leaked the Manafort financial records to help Clinton's campaign. They're now launching, by the way, a criminal investigation into this. This may, in fact, have been uh, an effort from Ukraine to try and tip the election in favor of Hillary Clinton. Now, if we are to be as outraged as we have been, according to the media, about any interference in our elections, shouldn't there be a desire to get to the bottom of this? Shouldn't this be yet another thread that the Department of Justice, which does work for the White House, therefore they work for the President of the United States, shouldn't they look into this? I think it's time that we start doing some of our own investigations. I think it's time that Hillary and all of her enablers are called to account for all the shenanigans, all the lies, all the crimes that Comey and others covered up for them. What constitutes a crisis? I mean, I could sit here and try to come up with a a definition that we could use here, some kind of a a working definition of the word crisis. But usually you understand a crisis is something that is, is imminent, major impact, must be dealt with, has real ramifications, causing real problems, could get much worse, likely to get much worse. And, you know, there, there's a sense of, of, of the here and now with it as well. You know, you're not worried about a crisis 10 years from now. You call it a crisis now. But a crisis is something we're in the middle of. And I think it's fascinating to hear in left-wing discourse right now, to hear liberals give us their version of what is and is not a crisis at the national level, right? I mean, it could be a crisis for you if you, you know, Lose, lose your wallet and can't get into your house at two o'clock in the morning. You don't want to wake up the wife after a long night of drinking, right? That might be a personal crisis, but a national level crisis is something that we should be able to, roughly speaking, agree on. This shouldn't be something where there's a, a lot of separation between Democrats and Republicans, but it turns out that there is a lot of separation. For example, and I'm not just going to keep saying this as a well, maybe I will keep saying it as a, as a preview of my time at the border next week, but I'll, I'll be down there to go investigate the crisis at the border. Here's what the Democrats say about that situation. Play one. It is absolute fiction that there's a national emergency here. Showing that this is not about a crisis. It's a political ploy. Crisis, crisis. And it's a crisis that doesn't exist. This national emergency is completely made up. A wall is a colossal waste of money for a crisis that doesn't exist. Even if he declares a national emergency, he's lying. 
<laughs> Even if he declares it, it will be a declaration of a falsehood. This whole idea of declaring a national emergency is ludicrous because there isn't one. Do any of those, obviously, Democrats who went on national TV to declare the border not a national crisis, do you think that they feel a little sheepish about that now, about being so stupid in public in that way? I can tell you that the few times that I can recall ever having said something on TV that either was factually inaccurate, to much to my chagrin, uh, or was kind of a prediction or analysis I made that turned out to be way off base. I, I'm, I, it haunts me. And I will tell you that it's very rare. It is very rare that that happens because when I, especially when I go on TV to talk about things, I make sure that I really know the issue backwards and forwards. And I don't want to be one of these people that's just carrying water on a, on a major issue like this for a team. I, I want it to be rooted in, in fact and truth and reality. And this idea that there's not a crisis at the border, which the liberals are still clinging to, is absolutely nuts. Absolutely out of control. Saying a border crisis doesn't exist. We, we have Immigration and Customs Enforcement saying that we simply do not have the resources, the beds, the, the manpower, the detainee facilities to process all these people showing up, showing up, showing up. Probably going to be over 100,000 people inadmissible showing up at the southern border, just skipping the whole immigration line. I have a friend right now in D.C., although I think actually he might have left the United States to go deal with this issue, who has spent tens of thousands of dollars on immigration attorneys to deal with different visa issues. And he's a he's a well-known conservative and is somebody who you would think America would just be rolling out the red carpet for. He's very productive. And no, he's got to go overseas and deal with some some visa issue now. And, and that's after spending tens of thousands of dollars. I, I made a joke to a friend of mine this week. I said, well, you know, he could just show up at the southern border. You know, maybe you'd have to he'd have to adopt somebody first. That would be even better. But, you know, you could adopt a kid, show up at the southern border, say, I'm really scared. I claim credible fear. And he'd be released in the United States and have a court date in about five years. And what are the chances at that point? The judge is going to say, you know what? You've been living here for five years. Let's send you back to wherever. I mean, it was a tongue in cheek suggestion, but it's it actually would work. So the, the, the border crisis, though, they say does not exist. This is hysteria. This is just politics from, you know, from Trump and his people and all this other stuff. Meanwhile, what does get the left really upset? What scares the, the you know what out of them? The heck out of them. Uh, climate change. Play two. The biggest threat to our prosperity in this 21st century is climate change. A crisis that could at its worst lead to extinction. That climate change is real, is an existential threat to our country and the entire planet. We are running out of runway to be able to fix this problem. We need all hands on deck. When the planet has been in peril in the past, who came forward to save Earth from the scourge of, of Nazi and totalitarian regimes? We came forward. So if you don't take global climate change seriously, you don't care about the world and the country. You don't care about people. <laughs> what an idiot. If you don't take global climate change seriously, like you just, 
You don't care about the world. <laughs> it's a real, it's an existential threat. We're all going to be wiped off the face of the earth. It's going to just disappear. It won't even be here anymore. And then you get, then you get Betu in there. Y'all, it's like, a, it's an existential threat. It's like, if we, if we don't deal with this right away, it's, we're just all going to die. These people think that they have science on their side. The earth has been around for billions of years. It's been through all kinds of actual cataclysms and, you know, asteroid strikes and ice ages. And you know, we, we can't even begin to fathom the timelessness, the majesty, the, you know, the, the, the universe that we live in. We're just barely scratching the surface of understanding, you know, how it came to be and where it is and, you know... I, and they really think they've got this nailed. Oh, no, the world's going to end. The next 50. Look, we know that they're, they, they just like this emotion. People, I've told you this before, and I'm letting you in on a big secret in the media. Catastrophe is always a good story. Catastrophe gets attention. Catastrophists are people who leverage that dishonestly. Now, you might say, Buck, sometimes you talk about the debt and how the economy... Yeah, because that catastrophe can also happen, right? You know, World War II was a catastrophe, for example, right? I mean, 60 million dead, uh, you know, 6 million Jews, 11 million dead total in the death camps. You know, you, you know, catastrophe is real, but some people like to play upon our, our basic human fear when it comes to a catastrophe, a possible catastrophe, and use that and exploit that. And that's what you see with all this climate change stuff. You know, people like to, they like to hear the scary story and they like to believe that they're a part of the solution. Ooh, this terrible thing is going to happen. It's so terrible. Oh, but if you only, if you only do this, or if you only believe this, everything will be fine. Everything will be better. This is why climate change is a religious belief for people who think that they are too sophisticated for religion. When in reality, they're actually just too self-involved to have a real religion for the most part because th this replaces i don't i don't even care if you really think the world is ending in 50 years unless we stop co2 i think it's very hard to make the case that you know you're you're a, you're a monotheist in, in good standing with the teachings of your of your church or whatever religious affiliation you may have but now i'm going a little bit off a little bit a little bit off the tracks but what what is hysteria and what is reality the border is a crisis. Climate change is not. Democrats have this completely inverted, and it's not going to change. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to have a constructive conversation about what the world should look like going forward. You spent a good portion of your time in Ohio the other day trashing John McCain. Senator John McCain is dead. Why are you doing this? So it's not a good portion of my time. It's a very small portion. But if you realize uh, about uh, three days ago, it came out that his main person gave to the FBI the fake news dossier. It was a fake. It was a fraud. It was paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. They gave it to John McCain, who gave it to the FBI uh, for very evil purposes. Uh, that's not good. And the other thing, he voted against repeal and replace. Now, he's been campaigning for years for repeal and replace. Uh, I'm not a fan. After all of this time, He's, re he's, think of this, repeal and replace. We would have had great health care. But Mr. President, Millions, he's dead. He can't punch back. I know uh, you punch back, no, but he's dead. I don't talk about it. People ask me the question. I didn't bring this up. You just brought it up. You asked the question. Well, you talked about it this week. 
you asked me the question. When I went out yesterday to the scrum, they asked me the question. When they asked me the question, I answered the question. But you people bring it up. I don't bring it up. I'm not a fan. He was horrible what he did with repeal and replace. It was what he did to the Republican Party and to the nation and to sick people that could have had great health care was not good. So I'm not a fan of John McCain, and that's fine. I don't understand why this is such a problem for so many of my fellow conservatives. Now, let me let me preface this. I, I don't agree with the president when he talks about the, you know, I, I don't I don't like I don't agree with, you know, the comments about I prefer people who weren't captured or whatever. No, no, no. It's, I mean, no one should say that. And especially somebody who never served should not say that. OK, I, I disagree with the president on that. That said, OK, that is just one component of this ongoing feud that's really about the legacy of John McCain and President Trump, because the legacy of John McCain is still brought up as a means of attacking this president. John McCain's decision, when we are assessing, for example, how effective this president has been. And I mean, I have to tell you, we did not get repeal and replace President Trump. So why didn't that happen? Is it Trump's fault? No, it's fair to say that John McCain, you know, turned on his own team. John McCain wanted that moment where he was the maverick. And you have to remember the most sanctimonious, annoying mainstream lib, mainstream media libs on the planet love using John McCain as a club to bash other Republicans with. You know, oh, John McCain wouldn't do that. You know, that's not in that's not in keeping with the honor and the dignity and and the incredible service of John McCain. Okay, we get it. The guy served his country honorably. That's fantastic. Are we going to play this game now with with Dan Crenshaw, where, you know, the left can't criticize Crenshaw? He's a Navy SEAL. He's a combat veteran. Guy, guy's a, a Purple Heart recipient. I mean, that's honorable and it's awesome. But does that mean they're not allowed to criticize him? Or are they being unpatriotic for criticizing Dan Crenshaw? I, don't, I mean, I know Crenshaw wouldn't make that argument. I wouldn't make that argument. I mean, they, but they tried it. The left tries to create this invincibility for all things McCain related. And, and I also think that McCain has come to symbolize. And look, we fight over the legacy of politicians who have passed away all the time. OK, so this all this whining from the libs about how, oh, he's passing, you know, and look, I understand he didn't pass away that long ago. If you want to make that argument, that's fine. It's only been a matter of months, not years. But, you know, they were trashing Reagan after he passed away. You know, they 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 there were libs who they, the only reason they didn't trash H.W. Bush that much Although some were saying he was a warmonger and a, and a bad man and all this other stuff. But the, the main reason is because the left likes the, the genteel uh, country club Republican GOP style. That's what the, the left wants us to go back to that. The very transactional chamber of commerce GOP that, you know, yeah, we've got some very smart people that work at some fancy think tanks and do a little razzle dazzle with the numbers and the debt and everything else. But we don't actually win. We, we don't actually comp. People say, oh, we win. Look at George W. George W. Bush won the election by the skin of his teeth and then took us to one war that was necessary, one war that definitely was not, and exploded the debt, was terrible on the border, expanded entitlements, couldn't fix Social Security. You know, so what are we really talking about here? What, 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 did, what did we win? The eight years of Bush. What, what, what were the big wins that have lasted to now? 
You say, oh, Buck, the war on terror. Okay, some parts of it from the executive and commander-in-chief perspective were reasonably well executed. I mean, it really depends. I, I think you look back at it and there were a lot of mistakes. You know, uh, there were a lot of, and not little mistakes, strategic errors, uh, misconceptions in judgment at the highest level of the decision-making chain post 9-11. And I think a sense of patriotism and just coming together at the time gave a lot of cover for some very poor decisions. But anyway, the, the, the real center of this issue for me is just that John McCain's legacy when it comes to policy and what he did as a senator is not something that is off limits. And they can keep trying to make President Trump, people can keep, and by the way, I'm not quibbling with, Bart Romo asking the question is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't personally know Maria, but I, I very much respect her work. I've worked with her over at Fox a number of times. I'm not saying that she can't ask the question, but there are people who, who are suggesting from within the GOP ranks, how dare you criticize John McCain, you know, because who's passed away. And I say, well, what are we criticizing? If we're criticizing his desire as a U.S. senator to reach to the other side and try to make himself in many ways bigger than the party, I think that's a problem. I think there was a megalomaniacal streak there. I, I just do. And, and I'm sorry, but he's a public figure. It's public life. I, I, I do not disrespect him personally or, or I would never disrespect his service. That's not the same thing. That is not the same thing. Uh, and, and I think people are dishonestly trying to conflate those two so that there's this, uh, th this aura of invincibility around all things McCain. And, and you know why the libs love the libs, libs like this because it gives them a way to just just trash, just absolutely trash Trump and feel like they're cre they're creating a friendly fire situation, you know, which nothing excites the libs, I think, more than that. So I, I, I try to be very honest about what I like about the president, what he's doing and what I, what I disagree with. And um, on this issue, I, I think that people are really, you know, they're, they need to be careful about how they set this up. Um, by the way, today was... Uh, also an interesting day from the president's point of view because of China tariffs. I just want to touch on this one um, because, you know, the markets had a good day today. People are there. There's a, a little bit of a, of a of a wind at our backs here on maybe getting a China deal. Here's what the president said about this play clip seven. We have to make sure if we do the deal with China, that China lives by the deal because they've had a lot of problems living by certain deals and we have to make sure now no president has ever done what i've done with china china had free reign over our country we actually rebuilt china in the truest sense of the word we're taking in billions and billions of dollars right now in tariff money and for a period of time that will stay the president is seeing this thing through he, he's not buckling on it and we'll see if he's able to do this this would be an incredible, an incredible turnaround. Because uh, he was told that this was a, a fool's errand from the start, that there was no way that he'd be in a position to get any kind of a concession from China on this, that, that he was going to start. Remember, we heard so much about a trade war and how it's going to destroy the economy and trade wars lead to real wars and all this stuff. No, he's brought the Chinese to the negotiating table in a way that they haven't been brought to it before. 
it, it, we've we we've, we've been propagandized to on the Chinese love it. I mean, the more I learn about China and I'm going to China, so I will have some uh, insights from spending time over there and, and meeting with you know business leaders. And that's happening in uh, in May. Buck is planning a lot of moving around for the next few months. And Buck will not refer to himself in the third person again. Sorry about that. But the president was the one who understood that Chinese behavior wasn't going to change because they were getting everything that they want and we weren't doing anything about it. And and that was the status quo. That was considered normal. That was people, oh, free trade. We don't have free trade with China. China's ripping us off with the tariffs that they put in place. So we can sit around and suffer in silence or do something about it. And you know, another part of this is we have to remember that when you choose to do something instead of just suffer, there are risks. There can be some downsides to that. And I, I, as somebody who is you know, lightly invested in the Chinese stock market a little bit, I can tell you, um, which I, I, I do not give investment advice. And let me tell you, it has not been a good time. to The last you know, year or so has not been a great time to be dabbling in Chinese stocks. Uh, but you know, this is something that the president was willing to do that nobody else was willing to do. And if he sees this thing, if, if he manages to get a victory here, it'll be stunning. Obama never pulled a thing that, like this off. People talk about the Iran deal. Obama just completely abandoned pillars of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East to create some appeasement scenario for the Iranians, where the Iranians, essentially, we made them an offer they couldn't refuse because why would they refuse it? They get a lot of money. They get a get-out-of-jail-free card for all the stuff they'd done up to that point, all the violence against our troops in Iraq. And, you know, on, on a worst-case basis, they wait a while, and then their nuclear program is pretty much turnkey, ready to go in 10 years when they're a much wealthier and more integrated in the global economy. So, I mean, Obama's deal-making skills or the people that were negotiating on his behalf, his administration was terrible, but they all want to lecture. They all want to lecture the uh, administration on this. By the way, Trump also spoke about the budget today, just to get that in here. Play, play eight. This year, we're asking for an additional $750 billion, which is a record. That includes funding to upgrade more than 160 mighty M1 Abrams tanks. So how does this compare with the tanks made in China and Russia and other places? What do you think? Can we take them? They say it's much better. America does not need conflict. But if conflict comes, and you know the story, you've got to be strong if conflict comes. We will dominate the battlefield and we will win, win, win. We're now set up to win, win, win. When I came in, we had some big problems. You look at what we've done on so many fronts. And we actually have better relationships. They respect our country more than they've ever respected it. Our country is respected again. The United States is respected again. Just want to just want to play it for you because you should know that while the media is fiddling over Trump's tweets all the time, there's actual governance that is getting that is getting done. It does happen. And Trump is pushing it through. One of the most important advantages that the left has in our culture is the decision that is just collectively made behind the scenes in various professions, usually professions that involve some 
public life, but it's also true for people that are just members of private companies and 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 aren't necessarily public figures. But one of the biggest advantages that the left has is deciding who gets to come back, who gets to be a comeback story and who is ostracized forever, who lives to fight another day, professionally speaking, and who is forever voted off the island, scapegoated off into the wilderness and not allowed to return. Um, here's a, a classic example of that. NYU Journalism School has hired an ex-New Yorker fact checker named Talia Lavin, who falsely claimed that an Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency had a Nazi tattoo in an article. Uh, it turned out that it was not a Nazi tattoo, and yet they didn't decide that this was some terrible sin that she had uh, said this about this guy. They, they've brought her back. I mean, her career did hit a bump last June. She accused Justin Gertner, who is a wheelchair-bound ICE agent, of having a Nazi Iron Cross tattoo. Uh, she made this charge in a tweet, and then she later deleted it. Um, it wasn't. It was in fact a Maltese cross, which is common to U.S. veterans of foreign wars. So, she got a rebuke from ICE itself and the New Yorker. "Quote: The personal social media accounts of staff members do not represent the magazine, and we in no way share the viewpoint expressed in the tweet." tweet has been deleted and we deeply regret any harm this may have caused. Now, I, I'm somebody who, who I get caught in, in between two feelings here, in between two path, paths forward. Because on the one hand, I don't like people being fired for, for a mistake in judgment when it comes to journalism, because we're, all, we're putting ourselves out there so much all the time. I don't like it. On the other hand, I, I think it's very interesting that when somebody does suffer consequences and they're a leftist, they always get another job in journalism and they aren't blocked from future employment of any kind. And on the right, you you can be done. I mean, they can Milo you. You can be completely gone for good. Now, regardless of whatever you think of Milo Yiannopoulos, I mean, that guy... You know, he could be on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific for all I know. And, you know, that he might wish he was in some ways. So they maintain, they always maintain on the left the ability to bring people back, to rehabilitate their image, um, and, or just to push them forward without any consequences whatsoever. Uh, you notice how uh, the Carl Malone uh, blackface impersonation that Jimmy Kimmel did Jimmy Kimmel, no, there's no, there's no consequences to that. Uh, you, you talk, I mean, there, there are other people in prominent positions in media who have done things that are, I'm not talking about offenses of, of the Me Too variety. That's a different, maybe a related part of this conversation, but a, a different uh, component of it. I, I'm talking about the people that did things that are offensive, right? That are too offensive. Oh, you need to be in trouble because what you said is offensive. It's racist. It's sexist. It's Islamophobic. One of those things. When someone on the left or, or just grotesque, I mean, the, I think it was uh, Julia uh, Yaffe. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but who has written for a bunch of different publications and is, is 
this way on the MSNBC circuit, uh, referred to the president's daughter publicly with one of the most horrific words you could use for a, a woman. She's still considered, uh, you know, in an elite journo circle. She's still considered somebody that's just fine. You know, there's, there's no problem whatsoever. And which is also why I felt that the, the stand that Tucker Carlson took, not that I agree with anything that he said, and, and, I, and not that I think that what he said was within the bounds of, of good taste in those situations, but it wasn't about what he said. It was about trying to take somebody out on the right. And that's what they keep doing. And we have to fight back. Uh, but this is a, a related extension of that. You know, if you're a journalist and you really mess up, but you're a leftist, you know, you're in good standing with the left, you will, sure enough, you know, as, as sure as, as night follows day, you will find yourself um, getting a job at NYU Journalism School. You know, you will find yourself in a position where you're taken care of and they'll, they'll put you, they'll put you back in the game. They, they just will. You always get a second chance if you're a leftist and that's powerful for their side in national debates and discourse. Sometimes you read a, a news story and you take a step back from it and you say to yourself, it's not even about, it's, it's really not about the uh, politics here. It's just depressing regardless, regardless of your politics. It is a, a depressing circumstance. And I got to tell you, that's that's what I took away from this New York Post story that says that millennials, my fellow post-1980, people are always telling me, book, you're not a millennial. Yes, I am. Just barely. I just graze under the millennial wire. And now that I have a beard that I will tell you is, uh, you know, something of a of a real beard now is getting closer and closer to full bearddom. And little, with little, and, and when I talk about it, to be like, book, stop being all self-indulgent. Look, I'm excited that I could actually grow facial hair. Give a kid a break. It's been a while. Actually, I've never tried it really before. So I was told when I uh, deployed as an analyst into both war zones by some of the more seasoned agency guys, they're like, don't just show up and grow a beard for no reason, man. Like, you're not fitting in with the locals and you're not a door kicker. And you know what? That was really good advice. <laughs> I've always, I always appreciated that advice. You're not, you're not trying to blend and you're not a door kicker. You don't need a beard. Don't be that guy. Now, maybe for other people, they like growing up. That's fine. I'm just saying I was told that and I thought that was probably probably a good move for me. Uh, anyway, I'm a gray beard millennial. And that's why it makes me sad when I read that according to the New York Post in this, this latest survey here, uh, millennials care more about their dates politics than sexual attraction. And I got to tell you, I don't understand this at all. I think this is I think this is bizarre. Between 2016 and 2018, according to this article, the number of women who consider politics more important than sex, uh, sexual attraction, shot up from 27 percent to 42 percent. While for men, hold on a second, that needle moved from 23 percent to 30 percent. Huh. Look at that. Almost half of women consider your politics millennial women. I know the, the married women are listening to this who are not, who are, you know, in the elder than millennial generations are like those silly, those silly millennials. They'll learn. Uh, but this is really indicative of the times we live in. Um, 
this is the situation where people don't they don't just make determinations about social situations uh, based upon political affiliation. They're really proud about being mean about it. And that comes across in this article. Uh, quote, if you're only exposing yourself to people who think like you, you're living in a silo and missing opportunities, uh, says this therapist named Megan Fleming. She believes that less intellectual tension could translate to less of a lustful spark in a relationship. She encourages her pa- uh, patients to go out of their comfort zone in love and in bed. That was the case for Julia, 27-year-old Brooklyn liberal and senior public relations manager who dated a Republican for three years. For the political opposites, everything was very extreme, including the attraction. Um, so some people think that the op- opposites attract in politics, but at least this therapist does. A lot of other people, though, are tending toward they will not date, you know, swipe left, so to speak, if you are a conservative, especially if you're a Trump supporter. I mean, this really comes down to a Trump, a Trump situation. I just think it's sad, man. I think that this is such a a an indication of how over-politicized everything is now. You know, sports are politicized. Obviously, media is highly politicized. I mean, entertainment media. Um, I couldn't even get through The Punisher on Netflix because it just turned into like this kind of anti-Trump, Russia collusion, anti-Christian, you know. I didn't even watch it all. I just saw some of it. I'm like, right, I know where this is going. You know, can't I just watch The Punisher waste really, really bad guys with cool guns? No, I can't. The answer is no, I can't. You know, they will not allow even that. And, and now in the uh, in the wonderful world of of millennial dating, it turns out that not only do they fight over who gets the last piece of avocado toast. Although I'm told now that smashed pea toast is, in fact, the new avocado toast. Did you know that, John? I learned I learned fa- I, I learned fancy things. I learned fancy things from the fancy people inside the swamp. Um, and also when I go back up to New York, I have to refill the hipster, the hipster meter by talking to the hipsters that I know. And they tell me what's really, they tell me what's going on now that I have, uh, a beard, of course, beards, I'm sure are probably, it's probably mustache time. I bet the mustache is, is making a, a big, a big comeback right now. And not just for airline pilots who always have to have a mustache. I will say this. I feel safer when I get on a plane and my, and my pilot has a big bushy mustache. You just feel like that guy's a pilot. You know what I mean? Or am I crazy? Or maybe I'm crazy. The good news is we've got roll call, so we don't have to worry about that. I'll be right back. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for roll call. Indeed. The roll call time. Team, I've got some... Interesting stuff coming up this month to tell you about, or in the next month, I should say, because we're getting pretty deep into this one. Uh, next Thursday and Friday, I will be down at the U.S.-Mexico border in the Rio Grande sector, so in the uh, environs of El Paso, uh, bringing you some ground truth from down on the border. And then I will be doing the show from Savannah on Monday, April 1st, and Tuesday, April 2nd. And then I'm going to be at WoWo Talk Tank on April 13th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. WoWo Land, if you are listening in Fort Wayne, Indiana right now, it is it is a requirement that you show up to this Talk Tank event. Because if you don't, you will hear about it later and you will be sad because it will be that awesome. It will be so epic 
Herodotus might soil himself. You need to come check this out. It'll be me, Tommy Laren, Todd Starnes of Fox News. You need to come check it out. And it's going to be a, a lot of fun. So with all of that said, let's get into all of the latest and greatest in the roll call world. Uh, let's see here. We have... First up in the inbox. I know you say, Buck, why don't you tee it up beforehand? Because you always do. Because I like the suspense. I like the suspense. Chesson, cool name, writes, It struck me today listening to your show that it's amazing that the left is wanting Manafort in prison for years, but feels that nonviolent drug offenders should not go to jail because there was no violence. Isn't it the same nonviolence in both situations? But they never feel that way because he's a Trump guy. No, Chesson, I, I would I would take it a step further. I, I, I agree with your underlying point here. Um, but to say that a drug offense, depending on the drug and the type of offense, is nonviolent is often uh, letting people off a little too easy. If you are selling opioids to opioid addicts, for example, if one were to do that, uh, that is putting lives in danger, right? So if somebody is selling drugs to people and then they overdose in fact there's been a surge in prosecutions for murder for people who just sell drugs and then the person overdoses on those drugs so i would say that uh that it, you know manafort's crime is a crime strictly against the government and the government is the only victim really and it's a financial it's a it's a financial and process crime there is no other victim the process was victimized and the Treasury Department in some way was victimized. And he's already made financial restitution. So there is that. But Chesson, good thinking, good message. Good to hear from you. Remember, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton team. Uh, Brad writes, Dear Buck, dedicated podcast listener from Alaska here. While listening to your latest podcast, I heard you reference the Alaska subsidy while talking about universal basic income. What we have up here in Alaska is called the Permanent Fund Dividend, or PFD for short. The fund was created and funded from oil revenues starting in the late 70s. In short, each Alaska resident gets a small dividend each year from the profits made in the stock market and other investments. You can imagine how the Alaska state politicians salivate about getting their hands on a $65 billion pot of gold meant for their constituents. Of course, Having a state budget deficit of $1.6 billion doesn't help matters. Only time will tell what will happen to the PFD in the future. As always, love your show and shields high. Brad, really expert analysis there, my friend. Thank you so much for writing in from Alaska. Uh, and just, just so you know, I, I believe tomorrow I will be uh, sitting down with Andrew Yang on Rising. I think we are interviewing Mr. Universal Basic Income himself, so to speak, in the Democrat primary. And his proposal, from what I understand, is that there should be a special set aside from the Silicon Valley barons and, you know, the massive tech companies to create a national version via tech company subsidy of your Alaskan permanent fund dividend. So what you have up in Alaska, the PFD, as you as you explained it to me, uh, they want to have that, but instead of oil revenue and investments, uh, you know, and, and returns from that revenue that's invested, they want to do that at the national level and have Silicon Valley and maybe Wall Street as well fund that with a, sp a specific tax, a set aside. 
So that's that's the plan. I don't think it's a good plan, but it is a for a lot of people on the left, a compelling plan. All right. Let's see here. Um, Adam writes the quote from yesterday was big trouble in little China. The check is in the mail. Jack Burton. All right, Adam. I tried to slip one past you, my man, but uh, no go, it seems. No go. Harry, but well done, Adam, by the way. Well done. I, I like I like it when you guys catch even the slightly vague movie references. Harry, it's hi, Buck. I assume you heard about this judge stopping the drilling because of climate change not being evaluated. So my question is, has this judge filed an environmental impact study for the CO2 and flatulence he will expel for the remainder of his life? Shields high, Harry. Um, I... I actually need to check out this piece, Harry, that you sent. And for everyone listening, it's U.S. judge halts hundreds of drilling projects in groundbreaking climate change ruling. And this, wow, this just broke today. Harry, this is a good, this is a good send, man. Thank you for passing this story my way. I, I did not see this one in my, uh, in my read file. So I will have to get back to you on this. Definitely a, a worthwhile piece. See, it, like I always say, team, this is, I don't just call you team because it's easy to say and I prefer it to folks. It's because this is a team effort. I'm, I'm pulling stories out of the inbox all the time, seeing what you say on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, calls. Although lately, I feel like when we take, I, we've already discussed this. I'm a little sad on the inside because you all call because you just want to talk to producer Mike because he's the cool one. Uh, I'm the one who talks all the time, but producer Mike is the cool one. Michael, right. Uh, speaking of Mike, Michael writes, Buck, you can say Rio Grande Valley. That's how I hear it referred to in Texas, not the Rio Grande uh, we've texified a lot of Spanish words. Guacamole or guacamole is just guac. The Alamo doesn't have a basement. The stairs, oh, sorry, the stars at night are indeed big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Shields eye, Michael. Uh, Texas, it is the promised land, from what I understand. My main man, Bart, from way back when. Isn't it interesting that Elizabeth Warren came out for reparations so early in her presidential run? Not just in some vague response to a reporter's question, but with a full-fledged announcement that this would be one of the core issues of her campaign. You know, Bart, I, I, I think that you raise just with that an interesting point because Elizabeth Warren uh, is trying to obviously kind of tack into the wind on the whole racial justice issue. So instead of walking away from it and leaving it alone because of her obvious racial fraud and the hoax that she perpetrated to advance her professional career, she's trying to say, oh, no, I'm going to be a leader on this issue. It's an interesting PR strategy, but I do think it is doomed to fail. Sheldon writes, Buck, podcast listener, and I just heard you mention you are selfish with the team's time, so you have so much to say it's hard to have guests or callers on most days. I just want to say thank you and stay selfish. While I enjoy your guests, I tune in to hear, uh, I tune into the Freedom Hut to hear the wise words, superior intellect, excellent analysis of the CIA sage. The smartest man on radio. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Sheldon from Texas. Well, well, Sheldon, you just made my day with the nicest message that I've gotten in, in quite a while, man. That really uh, means a lot. Thank you so much. And, you know, don't don't ever think for a second, whether it's you, Sheldon, or anybody else, that I don't I don't appreciate the encouragement or that it, it kind of goes over my head or unnoticed. Quite the contrary. You know, I'll tell you, I went I went over and, and I visited with my friends at the Leadership Institute, who I'm uh, planning to start a a partnership with soon on this show and they're doing incredible work over there 
And I, I saw my friend Lawrence Jones, who I started with at the Blaze. And Lawrence, I, I used to tell Lawrence, Lawrence, you're going to be big time. Lawrence, you got to move to New York. He'll, he'll admit this, I think, if you ask him. I mean, he knows that I've been, I've been a Lawrence Jones supporter and, and, and fan and friend from day one, from way back when. Um, but I saw Lawrence over there and, uh, you know, we, we, we got to have lunch and hang out. But as I was walking around Leadership Institute, someone, young, a young woman from the team just kind of popped up from behind a cubicle. She heard my voice. She heard me talking and she came, she came running over and gave me a big hello in front of everybody. And, you know, that just made my day. I, I don't even think I got a chance to tell her that. And so I want to take this opportunity now to say that does make my day. Um, and, and it was really appreciated um it was it was pro and i mean that from the bottom of my heart it really it makes me uh want to keep showing up here and doing the best show that i can all the time for all of you and makes all the research i mean i'm i'm falling asleep at night before i do this show these days diving deep into the gulag archipelago and and uh von mises and hayek and you know i'm trying to pull together all these different threads and bring you the best stuff that i can and i'm not saying woe is me i'm just saying it is all worth it for notes like the one I just got from Sheldon and for that moment of uh, that young lady's time at the Leadership Institute who, you know, really, uh, you know, that, that I don't know what else to say. It just makes it all worthwhile. It's so appreciated. And, and all of you, you know, this, this audience is so full of kind, courageous, and, and really worthy, decent people. And whenever I interact with them, you know, people say things like, oh, I'm, I'm humbled by it. But oh, I really am. The fact that so many of you across the country spend your time with little old me, you know, a little CIA analyst who was going to go off and work for corporate America and, you know, just kind of maybe start some kind of a, a little Twitter account with, a, with an avatar of the American flag so I could kind of have my two cents in the political conversation. Instead, here we are, nationally syndicated radio show, soon to be 130 stations and growing and growing and growing all the time. So thank you so much for all that. I really, I, I mean it. I mean, as you can tell, I'm actually, I'm getting a little, I get a little choked up just talking about how kind all of you are to me whenever you see me in any city, anywhere across the country. And uh, it really does mean a lot. All right, with that, and I always remember also my family listens to this show. So whenever you say something nice about me, you're making Mr. and Mrs. Sexton smile. Uh, that's going to be it for today, team. As always, I, uh, well, I think I've told you how much I appreciate your time. We'll have a, a great Freestyle Friday tomorrow. Until next time, shield high.